Welcome to the second season of Justice Speaks, the podcast of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. I'm Rebecca Jerome. Today we'll be discussing the oral arguments in the Supreme Court case of Schutte against Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action. The case concerns Proposal 2, a 2006 Michigan ballot initiative to amend the state constitution to prohibit race-based preferences in public education. This would mean that the University of Michigan could no longer look at a student's race when deciding whether they should be admitted, even though they could consider other factors that make the student unique, such as cultural background or musical or athletic ability. Mark Rosenbaum, chief counsel of the ACLU of Southern California, who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, explains. If I'm a kid and I want to talk to an admissions board and say, I can contribute to diversity because I have alumni connections or because I play the oboe. I make my case in whatever happens happens. But if I want to talk about race as one factor among many, what the admissions committee says to me is, we can't listen to you. You need to go out and raise tens of millions of dollars. You need to go out and repeal the state constitutional amendment. And if once you're done all of that, then you can come back here and make your case. In 2012, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals declared Proposal 2 unconstitutional because it places an unfair burden on those seeking to have race considered as one of many factors in university admissions. Under the 14th Amendment, no state can deny a person equal protection of the laws. The Supreme Court has adopted a standard of review called strict scrutiny that applies whenever a law treats people differently because they are members of a protected class, like a racial group. To survive strict scrutiny review, the law must further a compelling governmental interest and be narrowly tailored to that interest. Strict scrutiny is the most stringent standard of judicial review that courts use to determine a law's constitutionality. And in practice, it almost ensures that a law making racial distinctions will be found unconstitutional. Still, affirmative action policies have been found to be constitutional when they use race as a factor among many for the purpose of diversity. John J. Bursch, the attorney who defended Proposal 2 on behalf of Michigan, argued, The whole point of equal protection is to take race off the table when everyone is being treated the same. John J. Bursch argued that Proposal 2 is a way to take race off the table. But Mark Rosenbaum explains that Proposal 2, rather than taking race off the table, has deepened the polarization between the races, contrary to the spirit of the court's ban on race-based classifications. Proposal 2 created in Michigan a racial divide greater than any issue or any election in the past um, uh, five decades. In fact, the racial divide created by Proposal 2 was 10 percentage points higher, roughly, than the the racial divide that generally exists around affirmative action as as a policy matter. It was uh, two and a half times greater than the divide that existed at the time of Brown versus Board of Education with respect to busing. In the first half of this podcast, we'll be hearing from Professor Deborah Malamud, who taught for 12 years at the University of Michigan Law School before joining NYU School of Law, where she teaches constitutional law and a seminar on affirmative action. After that, 
we'll hear from Mark Rosenbaum, the Chief Counsel of the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California and professor at the University of Michigan Law School, who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of the Cantrell respondents. Professor Malamud, thank you for joining us. How does this case relate to affirmative action? Shuri is really a case about who gets to decide. Can the people decide that the people will decide through constitutional amendment rather than allowing the regents of the university to decide? Or must race-based affirmative action be treated the same as other educational policies or other preference policies that remain in the hands of the regents? The background to Schutte is Grutter and Fisher, which nobody's talking about, but, the, but those are the substantive higher education affirmative action cases that rule the doctrine. I don't see any of the parties in Schutte looking to change Grutter or Fisher. In that sense, substantive dimensions of affirmative action policy are not at issue in the case. Where do we stand substantively in terms of affirmative action right now? The one rationale for race-based affirmative action that the court has accepted for higher education is the diversity rationale. Diversity is understood to be a compelling interest for purposes of constitutional strict scrutiny, which is what applies to race-based affirmative action. And policies have to be narrowly tailored to suit that governmental purpose of diversity. Now, at issue in Schutte is can the state by constitutional amendment be more restrictive of affirmative action than the Supreme Court has been? In the oral argument, some of the justices seem to disagree on the meaning and purpose of strict scrutiny for race-based classifications. They seem to express concern that strict scrutiny was turned against those it was originally meant to protect. Justice Ginsburg said, Strict scrutiny was originally put forward as a protection for minorities, a protection for minorities against hostile, disadvantageous legislation. And so the view then was we use strict scrutiny when the majority is disadvantaging the minority. Justice Alito presents a different view. I thought the whole purpose of strict scrutiny was to say that if you want to talk about race, you have a much higher hurdle to climb than if you want to talk about something else. Now, you can argue that strict scrutiny should only apply to minorities and not to students who are not minorities, but I thought the court decided that a long time ago. There are a couple of points in the oral argument in which Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg take issue with current strict scrutiny doctrine, um, or at least suggest that the conservative understanding of that doctrine is not necessarily the correct one. They suggest at a couple of points that it's incorrect to see strict scrutiny as having equal concern for the rights of racial majorities as for the rights of racial minorities. My view is they've lost that battle. Why do you think that they were bringing this up? There's a certain irony in this case about strict scrutiny. For the conservatives, and the state of Michigan was arguing in this vein, there's something perverse 
about having a 14th Amendment doctrine that stands in the way of the public taking the deepest possible full responsibility for race-conscious decision-making policy. At one point, Chief Justice Roberts says, I mean, You could say that the whole point of something like the Equal Protection Clause is to take race off the table. Is it unreasonable for the state to say, look, race is a lightning rod? Uh, we've been told we can have affirmative action programs that do not take race into account. For the liberals, strict scrutiny plays indifferently. Their feeling is that because of strict scrutiny for race-based affirmative action, the race-based affirmative action at issue is already narrowly circumscribed by prior Supreme Court decisions. The fact that strict scrutiny has become so much stricter obviates the need for a higher level of state political supervision because the Supreme Court is already exercising such a heavy level of supervision. And I think that that difference in vision is what permeates the oral argument here. Professor Malamud, do you have any predictions for this case? It's clear from their questions what Sotomayor and Ginsburg are going to do. It doesn't really matter what they're going to do. What matters is usually what Kennedy is going to do. And I think that in this case, there's some sign that there may be an alliance between Kennedy and Breyer brewing. There seems to be at least some possibility that Justices Breyer and Kennedy will convince each other to say that these constitutional amendments put impermissible burdens on the shoulders of minorities while still allowing the states to do some upward movement of ultimate responsibility for race-conscious policy away from low-level bodies to higher-level bodies. I will be interested in seeing whether some sort of compromise along those lines is forged. Professor Malamud, thank you so much for being part of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change Justice Speaks podcast. We really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. is Mark Rosenbaum, Chief Counsel of the ACLU of Southern California, who argued the case in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of the respondents. Thank you very much for joining us. Since the oral arguments, have you thought of ways you would have answered the justices' questions differently? And if you had a chance to clarify a position or further emphasize a particular point to the court, what would that be? Well, I have. You know, um, I think my biggest regret is that we only had 15 minutes. The themes of this case are terribly important empirically to, to kids across the country who are in states where these sorts of bans have been imposed through the state constitution. And they're important doctrinally regarding the way that we think as a nation about race and the way that race is treated. I wish I had emphasized more that the point of amendments like Proposal 2 is that contrary to taking race off the table, what they do is in fact emphasize race, they deepen race, they build race into our political structures. You talked about the racial divide created by Proposal 2. Why are these issues also important doctrinally? With respect to all constitutionally permissible matters that involve race, there'll be one set of rules. For all other constitutionally permissible uh, policies, there'll be another set of rules. So that, that means that race is the critical factor in our political process. I wish I had said more that, that what the case is about is not the ends, 
but it's the means that, that is being used. You know, Justice Scalia asked me at one point, isn't that what the 14th Amendment is? And I don't think I answered that question terribly well. Why, why doesn't the Fourth Amendment uh, violate the rule you're saying? Why are the 14th Amendment violate the rule that you're proposing? I mean, I'm a, I'm a minority, and I want laws that favor my minority, not just in university, everywhere. My goodness, I can't have that through the normal legislative process. I have to get a constitutional amendment to do it, right? That is correct, Your Honor. And well, so I guess, I guess that uh, on this subject of uh, equal treatment of the races, you, we, we can uh, uh, eliminate racism just uh, at the at the legislative level, can't we? I actually thought his question, if I had answered it fully, was favorable to us because it made clear that the very standard that he was talking about was a standard that said that measures like proposal to are are unconstitutional. Because the fourteenth amendment is of course the standard. It's how we evaluate the way the government operates. And that means that it's not up to the executive branch or the legislative branch to make the final decision, that which I had stressed further, was that the problem here is that race is being used insidiously to distort the political process, to make the racial nature of the issue the determinative factor of how government makes decisions. And that's why measures like Proposal 2, measures like Prop 209 in California, John J. Bursch, the attorney for Michigan, kept emphasizing that people can decide not to use race as a factor in university admissions and that it's constitutional. It cannot be unconstitutional for the people to choose not to use them anymore, to accept this court's invitation in Grutter to move past the discussion about race and into a race-neutral future. If the people of the state of Michigan want to say that their universities not uh, not consider race as part of the admissions process. That's totally legitimate. You know, Justice Alito, at the end of the argument, I wasn't up there then, but, but said, you know, there is a difference between entrenching a policy in a state constitution as opposed to anywhere else. If you change the allocation of power in one of these less substantial ways, that's one thing. But when you require a constitutional amendment, that's really a big deal. So one thing that the state is not free to do is to pick out, select out, pull out only racial matters and have that state constitutional amendment that is limited to that. So say, say the state of Michigan passed a constitutional amendment and it said, we don't want to consider race. And we also don't want to consider alumni status. And we also don't want to consider geography or some other factor. Then we could say to ourselves, you know what? This is not a process that is only about race. Race has not been introduced as the sole factor that is defining the political process. And they could do that. Or they could say... Um, we want someone else making this decision about what admissions policies will look like. Or say they said, you know what, we want admissions policies that only look at grade point and SAT scores. And that would have been fine. 
combat would have had the effect of taking, as the Chief Justice said, grace off the table. But it would have done so in a way that didn't upset the basic purpose of the 14th Amendment, which was to prevent the injection of race in the political process. So it's not a question of what one's ultimate objective is. The question is the way you go about doing things. And the medium is the message when it comes to the 14th Amendment. Thank you, Professor Rosenbaum, and thank you again, Professor Malamud, for joining us. For more analysis on Shooty and affirmative action, visit our website at socialchangenyu.com or attend our symposium at NYU on the future of affirmative action on April 4th, 2014. You can also follow us on Twitter at socialchangenyu or like us on Facebook as NYU Review of Law and Social Change. We hope you will join us for future episodes of Justice Speaks, featuring clips from oral arguments and commentary by scholars and practitioners. This podcast was produced by the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. I'm Rebecca Jerome. The other producers on this podcast were Scott Bula and Jeff Wertheim. Thanks to them and all the editors of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. Our thanks also go out to Mike Hamill, who provided us with the music. Learn more about him at MikeHamillMusic.com.